go home so you can come back to ski another day. When I talk about changing the culture, So we feel it's really important to educate that population. And I think it's when people make a mistake that they start to really understand the significance of the risks they're taking. Welcome to episode 2.12 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, with additional support from Black Diamond Peeps, Live, Ski, Repeat, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I hope everybody is getting out and getting some turns in lately. I don't care who you are, no matter what sort of problems are going on in your life, hitting the skin track and taking some laps with good friends is the best form of therapy in my opinion. I'm sure you're all making appropriate terrain choices given the current avalanche problems. Sure has been inactive last month for avalanche cycles. Unfortunately, within the United States, according to stats from the American Avalanche Association, We've had 19 avalanche fatalities this season, and 12 of those 19 have been in the last month. Persistent and deep slab avalanche problems remain reactive in many places, but will likely gain some strength over time. As these snowpacks gain some strength, these avalanches will become more difficult to trigger, but the consequences will be grave of triggering a thin area of the snowpack where these persistent weak layers are present. Careful route finding, communication, train analysis, and group management are key elements to coming home safe. Tag the show in a social media post of you skiing, riding, or digging in the snow. Don't forget to reach out to us if you have a story you'd like to share. We'll feature it on our listener-provided short story segments called Slabs and Slough. We'll also be having another glove giveaway contest over the next month thanks to our friends at Black Diamond Equipment. Stay tuned after the show to find out how you can win a pair of Black Diamond's Legend gloves. Go buy a hat. Everybody loves these hats. I'm wearing mine right now. They're great. Plus, from now through the end of April, all proceeds from swag sales are donated to protect our winters. Check out the store at www.theavalanchehour.com. I know you like your winter. I like my winter. Let's do what we can do. Check out www.protectourwinters.org. In early January of 2015, two young, very talented ski racers from the U.S. ski team were killed in an avalanche in Austria while skiing off-piste during a day off from training. As a result of this accident, it became apparent that the ski racing community could do a better job of educating athletes around avalanche awareness. Today, we talked to Michael Silich of the Brass Foundation 
about some of the work they are doing to move athlete education in the right direction. Without further ado, crack a cold 10-barrel trail beer and enjoy our interview with Michael. Welcome, Michael Silich, to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Thanks for sitting down with me this morning. Well, thank you, Caleb, for making this happen. I'm really excited to have an opportunity to sit down with you and chat and explain explain what I'm doing these days. Yeah, awesome. If you could start with just giving us a, a history or background of your roles in the guiding world in the Avalanche community. Sure. I really started my guiding career working for Colorado Outward Bound School a lot of more instruction-based and teaching-based programs, but I quickly sort of gravitated towards the technical aspects of rock climbing and ski touring. Yeah, way back then in the 1980s, we used to ski up towards Independence Pass and camp there for about 10 days and do all sorts of ski touring from there. And that was my first real ski touring and winter camping experience and guiding experience. I also became a technical instructor for Outward Bound and taught uh, taught instructors there. Then I went on to work for American Alpine Institute up in uh, the Northwest, and that's when I started guiding all over the world, uh, rock, alpine, and ski. Uh, I finished my AMGA certifications and got my international guides pin in 2002, and uh, moved permanently to Europe uh, at that time. Actually, I lived there full-time for a little earlier than that. Started guiding there in the late 90s. Um, with the AMGA, I was also an a instructor and examiner for Alpine and uh, also worked closely with the Swiss and the French Guides Associations to help create uh, some of the early exchange programs. So I was able to observe and sit in on some Swiss uh, alpine exams. Uh, Sam Antematen was one of the notable candidates on one of the courses I was at, and uh, was also worked with uh, Anselm Beau uh, in Chamonix, which he is a, a ski legend, a steep ski legend in the Alps, and made some of the great first descents in the Chamonix area in the Alps. Uh, I guided full-time and lived full-time in Europe uh, just until a few years ago, so uh, over 18 years, I think, of guiding there. I still go back. Even the last two years, I spent uh, three months in Zermatt working with the local guides and bringing American kids uh, to the Alps. Uh, we spent 90 days at a time there. They'd go to school in the morning, and then we'd go out and climb, mountaineer, and ski uh, for 90 days straight. So it was a pretty amazing opportunity to get kids from all over the country and help them become uh, lovers of the mountains and really enjoy enjoy the Alps and the mountains. I started uh, getting involved with avalanche education early on. I think I took maybe the very first Airy Level 3 course. I was involved with Carl Clausen, Jean Paviard, Colin Zacharias, uh, Howie Schwartz was involved in some of these early courses uh, and took took what I learned uh, to Europe. So I actually started teaching airy courses in Europe 
in in the early two hundred in the early two thousands, and uh, had a really neat opportunity in Switzerland to teach area level one and level two uh, as a semester program hmm. to high school kids, and we'd get to meet. Uh, we'd usually meet uh, Wednesday afternoon in the classroom or even Wednesday morning, I think, and then uh, get out and ski on weekends. So it was an extensive program. We got to meet many more days than we had to, um, but that way they really got to learn. They learned well uh, the material and how to apply the material. We were out skiing a lot, looking at roots, root finding, and uh, decision-making, as well as looking at snow layers and digging pits. So yeah, I really enjoyed teaching airy courses in Europe, and... I mean, some of these kids, uh, one of them wrote me for a reference afterwards, and he was able to work at a, as a ski patrol. Um, and I think the course really brought him uh, brought him in that direction. Uh, later, just ski guiding uh, became one of my favorite parts of, of guiding, especially as I got older and I didn't like hiking, uh, hiking up and down big mountains. Uh, it's kind of hard on your hips and knees. After a while, a lot of my friends had hip hip replacements, so I really gravitated towards uh, ski touring and and skiing in the winter. I love skiing in the Alps, especially Chamonix. It has amazing off piste and amazing lift access ski tours that you can do. And I, I love the sense of being able to travel over over the whole mountain range on your skis. And that's, especially in the Alps, you can feel that. You can start in a little town, take a lift up, cross a couple passes, um, skin a little, go around a mountain here, go around a mountain there. Uh, you're skiing in some beautiful powder up at the top, and you might have to ski through a terrible wind crust uh, section for a while, but then you end up skiing beautiful spring snow as you come down into a little village and, and then take the train home. And uh, that whole ability to traverse the Alps is, uh, makes uh, ski touring really special for me. I didn't really get back into teaching uh, avalanche education uh, directly until I came back to the U.S. I do think my experience in Europe uh, gave me the vision I have to now that I have now on how to understand avalanche avalanches, avalanche terrain. Um, and different different climates as well. I think really all the mileage I have has given me a unique. Uh, it's well for myself. It's given me a, a really unique way to look at the mountains, and it's taught me one thing. The most important is to always uh, err on the safe side and go home so you can come back to ski another day. <clears throat> so I definitely don't tend to be someone who pushes it. I like skiing the extreme lines in Chamonix, but I won't go ski them the day after it snowed. Um, a friend of mine, Mina, a Finnish woman, she she was skiing and she had someone ski on top of her and or ski into her line and and a slough knocked her over and almost killed her. So yeah, especially when there's places where there are a lot of people, yeah, I, I tend to back off a little and not be too worried about getting the first tracks. Well, that, that certainly is part of uh, um, having longevity in the mountains, right, is, is being patient, Michael. I'm sure you know all about that. Yeah, having guided in the Alps for almost 20 years now, I've seen a lot of stuff, and I've learned uh, to be patient for sure. And I've seen a lot of young athletes uh, end their time uh, far too soon. So, Michael, uh, last fall you 
took a new position as executive director of BRASS, which is the Bryce and Ronnie Athlete Snow Safety Foundation. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, Caleb. Yeah, I'm really proud to be able to manage and run BRASS. Uh, It's a mission I really believe in, and I also feel like it's a great combination uh, of my experiences. It's a great place to utilize my different experience bases. Uh, Bryce and Ronnie were lost in an avalanche and sold in Austria January 5th, 2015. They were skiing with the U.S. ski team. It was a day off. It was a powder day because uh, the snow was too soft to train gates in. Uh, They were two up-and-coming U.S. ski team athletes. Steve Nyman told me the other day that, uh, of course, how tragic it was, but he also said, you know, if these guys were still alive today, there's a good chance they'd be skiing in this year's Olympics. They were amazing skiers, Bryce and Ronnie, and amazing people, the more I learn about them. We're actually making a movie, and uh, that'll be out this winter. And hopefully you'll get a chance to take a look at it. It memorializes their lives and their stories and also talks a lot about avalanche education and the importance of taking classes and getting educated. So what is the mission of BRASS? So the BRASS Foundation was started by the U.S. ski team and by the families, by the Astle and the Burlak families who lost their boys on that day. The mission is education. Uh, We're focusing really on ski and snowboard athletes who are members of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Uh, But amazingly, if you think about it, that's almost 45,000 strong, and it includes the top World Cup skiers and riders, as well as the six-year-old who's skiing on some team in Michigan or New England, a place I mentioned that just because that's a place where they might not even think about avalanche or snow safety. And what we find is these athletes grow. For one, uh, this population is becoming some of the most technically best skiers and riders there are in the country. So they have this elite skill level, but they're not necessarily getting the full balance. They're not necessarily getting the avalanche education to go with that. And they might not all make it to the World Cup or to the Olympics, but most of them are going to stay skiers and very good skiers for the rest of their lives. So we feel it's really important to educate that population uh, so they can have an enjoyable career and and be safe while they ski. Yeah, that sounds like a great program and and something that's maybe been missing for a while um, within the ski racing community. Um, It's unfortunate it took took that for, for this to come around. But what what is the Brass Foundation? What do, what does it look like on the ground when you guys are teaching avalanche education to uh, these all ages really of of ski racers? I guess. Yeah, we have several educational directions we're working on right now, Caleb. I started full time this January, January two thousand seventeen and quickly realized that education was foremost, and that's what we needed to do. The first program I put into place happened last spring, and it was an airy level one course for the World Cup coaches and World Cup athletes. What was neat about that is we had coaches and athletes from all disciplines, from border cross to Nordic combined to downhill, uh, other, uh, other alpine disciplines, and the U.S. Ski and Snowboard, that's their new name, 
has a mission of one team. And so it was really neat to see all these disciplines work together as one team and get educated. Um, we're, this is, was a very popular program. It's going to grow fivefold this year. And we're going to have a level two this year as well because the ones who took level one really recognize the value and want to continue their education. So getting skiers and snowboarders to take the level one and the level two and the level three area is a really important direction for us as well as avalanche awareness. We want to impact as many people as we can, as soon as we can, really. Uh, so another project we're working on is avalanche awareness. We're doing a pilot program. We call it the Brass 101. Uh, this fall, I traveled to New England, and we taught there. We taught over, I think, almost 12 academies and clubs. And again, that's it was a pilot program. It's the first year we've done it, and it's going to grow uh, a lot as well. Uh, I went over specifically to the first club, Burke Mountain Academy, and presented there. Uh, we were really well received. The whole school was there, the coaches, the teachers, and the athletes. And that was the school where Ronnie was attending, and Ronnie Burlack's parents are involved in. His dad's a coach there. So it was a real honor to be able to present there and to use the momentum, like you said, of this tragedy uh, to a good purpose and to really getting people educated. We're doing a similar program, pilot program out west, which is just coming up. Uh, we'll be teaching the Brass 101 program in the Wasatch and maybe a little bit further afield this year. But the idea is to grow that program each year and try to hit each region uh, with the big clubs or any club that wants to be involved. So if you hear this and want your club to be involved, please contact Brass Foundation. Besides the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Clubs and racers, we do want to reach out to all the communities. And I have some really long-term projects there, which I'd love to see. Um, but initially, for example, this year, we are uh, working with the school system in Park City, where I live. When I lived in France, my kids were born over there. They were born in Switzerland, but went to uh, grade school in France. And there, starting in first grade, you get avalanche education in most of these small mountain towns in Chamonix. In Chamonix, for example, the PGHM, they're the high mountain rescue police. There's big burly guys uh, in these blue suits. They're kind of like the Navy SEALs of the mountains. And uh, they come into the first grade and start talking to the kids about avalanche education and snow safety. And it's not just once. Then they come in in second grade and then third grade and fourth grade and so on for the whole time. So they're really creating a culture of understanding their environment, the winter environment. And that's my goal with Brass Foundation is to teach these kids to understand the whole environment, uh, all aspects of it, whether it's tree wells, cornices, crevasses, because a lot of these kids will be going and skiing in Europe with their clubs or in South America. So we really want to change the culture and not just have it be something that a kid takes an AVI course once in eighth grade and maybe he's on his cell phone the whole time and doesn't even get it. Or maybe he does. There's a lot of kids that are getting good education in the U.S., but we'd like it to be more embedded. I was talking to someone at the Utah Avalanche Center Snow Symposium last weekend. He was a longtime ski guide and uh, ski patroller in the Little Cottonwood Canyon, and his son was on one of the freeride teams up there, and he was 18 years old. 
And the father was trying to convince his son to take a level one. And my first response was, what? He's been on a free ride team his whole life, and he's 18, and he still hasn't taken a level one? And that was my first thought. And then the son went on to say, oh, gee, Dad, my, my friends haven't taken one. Do I have to? And uh, so clearly, the culture is not yet where it needs to be in the U.S. I mean, for sure, these guys are getting education, and I want to give kudos to the clubs and the teams that are doing their best to provide as much education as possible. But I'd like to see, especially on free ride teams, I'd like to see it uh, required that kids get level one by even 13, 14 years old. I mean, they're really out there, and that's the time where they can really learn about the environment and change their cultural understanding of the, the winter environment. Yeah, well, it certainly is a lifelong process, as we as we all know. Um, Michael, I was hoping you could just explain for, for some of my listeners that may not know kind of some of the differences of skiing in Europe, um, so the difference between piste and off-piste and how people might not realize that they're in avalanche or an uncontrolled environment in avalanche terrain when they actually are. That's a great question, Caleb. Um, and that's a big part of why brass exists and a big part of our mission is to get people prepared to ski in Europe and other places besides the U.S. Even out west in big resorts like Snowbird, you have essentially a rope marking the whole external boundary of Snowbird or, the, or these resorts. And the idea is if you're inside the rope, you're safe, and if you're outside the rope, it's your responsibility. Not that even in the U.S. people really understand that. I'm, when I ski at canyons, I go up to 9990, which is a popular gate people go out of, and and I'll see just normal uh, guests from the ski area go out of that all day long. I'll see 100 an hour go out of that with no equipment and no understanding of the consequences of their actions. Sure, it might be fairly stable that day, but it might not. People do get caught in avalanches there. Um, and I think it's when people make a mistake that they start to really understand the significance of the risks they're taking. But often they're blind to understanding that risk before anything happens or if nothing happens. But that's not to say in the U.S., even if you're inbounds, that you're 100% safe. Just 10 years ago in canyons, a, a fourth grade boy was covered by an avalanche. Uh, luckily, when they pulled him out 15 minutes later, blue uh, in the face, they were able to do CPR and revive him, and now he's uh, doing great. He didn't have any permanent damage at all. But unfortunately, that same day, a man was killed inbounds, uh, in the resort. So my point being there is that avalanche education is important for everyone, even in the U.S. Now, if you go to Europe or South America, you'll find a whole different scenario. And they call it off-piste, if that's a French word. And it literally means off the groomed run. The piste is where the cat has gone down to groom. And sometimes in Europe, you see these huge ski areas and resorts up in the high alpine, and there's one groomed run going down a road or the middle, and then everywhere else is off-piste. There might be a rope that you might have to duck, or there might not be. And you'll find yourself immediately in uncontrolled snow, in an uncontrolled environment. And what that means is all those layers in the snowpack are there, hidden under the current snow layer, and you don't know what they are unless you look, unless you dig into the snowpack, feel it, poke your pole into it, look for signs... Uh, that there might be avalanche hazard, etc. Now, one thing I've found is that when people are used to growing up in a ski area like Snowbird or a really good, uh, a really good powder resort 
even if you're in bounds, they might get a false impression about ski cutting, ski triggering, um, sloughing, and that kind of stuff. Um, it's after a storm cycle, it's pretty easy to ski cut or have a little slough happen if you're skiing on snow that's been controlled and compacted throughout the whole season. But that's a whole different scenario when you get out of bounds uh, and you get to a slope that hasn't been controlled via explosives, via compacting through a grooming device or anything like that. And basically what you get there is you can get persistent weak layers that rest in the snowpack the whole season. And that I think allows for some false security. People think, oh, I'll just ski out of it if it slides. Or they think, oh, I'll ski cut it to see if it's safe. But that absolutely doesn't work on uncontrolled slopes. And you might think, oh, this slope is controlled because it's right next to the resort and, and so many different people ski it after every snowstorm. There's a lot of significant evidence and research that shows that you can't compact a slope just by skiing it. So these slopes that are just off-piste, just under a rope, or just next to the ski slope that haven't been controlled can be just as dangerous as if you're miles from the slope. And the best way to find out about that is to talk to the ski patrol at the ski area you're at when you get to a new place. If you're a coach bringing a group to train in the Alps or in South America, talk to the ski patrol when you get there. And I've just been, I've just spent uh, the last few falls skiing in Zermatt, Switzerland. The U.S. ski team goes there, the mogul team. And I've talked to the patrollers there a lot, and they are more than happy to talk to groups and to individuals. They want to educate you. They'd much rather teach you how to avoid the hazards than go have to pull you out of an avalanche or out of a crevasse. Interestingly enough, in Zermatt, uh, the moguls team, the U.S. moguls team, trains there almost every fall. And they put a mogul course just to the left of the piste of the groomed run, and it's all on a glacier there. And the mogul team even tells me, oh, yeah, sometimes crevasses open up right under our moguls. Um, the, the patrol there and the groomers there keep a pretty good eye on that. They make sure that there's not a big crevasse that someone will uh, get swallowed up in. But that just shows you the hazards. And, for example, there, after it snows, uh, there's a powder field just left of the moguls. You have to duck the rope for the moguls, but the mogul skiers know that you know they're supposed to do that, the, the mogul field was built by the groomers. But then as soon as it snows, you'll see a track go out more left and more left and more left. And there's big crevasses out there, uh, big enough to kill someone, big enough to have someone fall in and kill you. And there's a slope that you get under that's over 30 degrees. So remember, if avalanche conditions are high, you don't want to ski on slopes greater than 30 degrees, or you want to be very careful. Or you want to make sure there's no slopes above you that are 30 degrees. So that's an example of a slope that's above you. That's uh, over 30 degrees. So that's also an example of just how you can get in trouble without barely thinking about it skiing in the Alps. In the Alps also, there's a lot of differences between how different countries and different regions manage their terrain. Many areas have what they call free ride zones, which are uncontrolled environments, um, but they're usually closed if the avalanche danger is too high. And you pretty much follow pylons, one pylon to the other, to get back to the, the controlled runs. So basically in the Alps, there's sort of a combination of 
controlled slopes, controlled pistes, and ungroomed, uncontrolled slopes that could have lingering weak layers. So it's really your responsibility to understand the hazards, to have looked at the forecast, to know what the uh, the danger scale is that day, to have equipment, to know how to use it, to have the education on how to route find, to know what angle of a slope you're skiing on, to know how to uh, avoid trigger points, to know how to stay spread apart enough, etc. You know, and, and, and so there's a long, rich history in Europe and in the Alps of, of guiding as well, probably um, long before we were guiding in America. So I think you hit on some really key points there, Michael, of if you don't, if you don't know, ask, or if you don't know how to do something and you want to get out into this train, just hire a guide, right? That's a great point, Caleb. In fact, uh, after the accident uh, with the U.S. ski team, uh, they created a policy that if you're going to ski off-piste in Europe, you have to hire a guide. And for now, I think that's a great way to go because it's a guaranteed safety net. And as well, it's an opportunity for the athletes and the coaches who are skiing with the guide to learn quite a bit, to ask questions and really improve on their skill. I actually got a chance to guide Bodie Miller and his Team USA in Chamonix a few years ago. They hired me and High Alpine Mountain Guides to take them down the Valley Blanche. And uh, that was a really neat opportunity, and that was an example of them being smart. Yeah, awesome. Um, so what are some goals that the Brass Foundation has for the future? You mentioned the 101 program that's in 12 schools back east and then a number of, of schools and clubs out west. Um, how do you see the program growing in the future? So yeah, Caleb, thanks for asking. Course-wise, we have our Airy Level 1 and 2 courses. We have online education for all regional coaches across the country, which we also hope to eventually have available for every athlete and parent. Uh, within the U.S. ski and snowboard. And like I said, athlete-wise, we're up to thirty-five to 45,000 people. And then you think about their parents. I had, uh, after I taught the Level 1 course, I had parents of World Cup athletes writing me to thank me so much for offering their daughter or son the opportunity to take the course, and they really saw the value in it. I also had athletes thank me for the course, too, because... Right now, the Brass Foundation is paying for these courses for uh, national team athletes and coaches. Uh, so we're raising the money with our foundation to be able to provide that education. And one, one athlete, for example, who's now an ambassador for Brass Foundation, wrote a letter, a very nice letter to thank me and mentioned how important it was for him that, for one, we're providing the course at a time that he can work it into his schedule. Competitors have a very tight schedule. And the end of the season in late April was the best time. And two, he thanked me just for paying for it because here he is. He's a World Cup athlete, and he has to work two jobs in the summer, train twice a day, and every penny he saves has to go to his travel expenses and uh, and into his uh, competition. <clears throat> Another thing that I found odd was that his sponsor was giving him alpine touring gear, skins, skis, boots, um, but leaving it up to him to get the education. And here you have these big companies giving everyone the gear, 
uh, to ski, but not giving them or even turning them towards an opportunity to get educated. Luckily, he realized how important it was and followed up on his own. So going back to the courses, we have level one and two for the World Cup teams and national teams. We have a regional program online for all the regional coaches and hopefully playing out to all athletes. We have the Brass 101 program where we go individually to clubs and coaches across the country. And another exciting thing we're doing, Caleb, is we're producing a movie, which is going to be out pretty soon here. Uh, we're working in partnership with the Utah Avalanche Center, the same folks who made the latest Know Before You Go video. Uh, so it'll have the same excitement and great ski footage and great education in it as well. The Brass movie will be a memorial for the two boys, Bryce and Ronnie, who lost their lives in 2015. And it will have a lot of uh, important education. We really want to emphasize the human factor in this movie as well, because that's so important. And I think the human factor, understanding decision-making, group decision-making, understanding the heuristic traps, as the avalanche world knows them as, uh, basically shortcuts in decision-making, faults that make you make a quick snap decision that might not be the right one. Uh, basically sharing all those ways that people make decisions and why I think is the quickest way to getting people in a place where they can make good, good, good where they can make a good decision and not uh, find themselves in a, in a bad situation. Yeah. And certainly that multimedia helps create more awareness and kind of, I like to call it set the hook for ongoing avalanche education that really should never end within your whole ski career, right? We all need refreshers um, for the for the length of our career. So, Michael, you mentioned some ambassadors that the Brass Foundation has. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that and, and the role that mentorship plays within the ski racing community and how you guys are transferring that to uh, avalanche education. Sure. Yeah, mentorship obviously is very important. Young racers look up so much to the older athletes for anything from training advice, inspiration, etc. So, of course, they're going to look up to them when I talk about changing the culture. If the older athletes have really committed to avalanche education and correct avalanche travel procedures, the younger athletes will see that too. So Brass has started an ambassador program, and we're building it slowly, really trying to handpick athletes who we think will be good to tr help transfer that knowledge and really speak for avalanche education and speak for brass. We are working more with the free riders as well. And we have athletes. I have one ambassador that competes in the free ride world tour, and she's doing a great job bringing the message down to the, the free ride population. I like to get young athletes as well, uh, especially if they've already had a level one or if we can get them a level one soon. So they really understand the message that they're passing down. Michael, any, any other partners that are helping to support the Brass Foundation? Any companies out there? You bet. Blizzard Skis has done a great job this fall supporting us. They really helped organize our whole East Coast Brass 101 tour, and they're offering a lot of support and enthusiasm. BCA has been doing a great job providing support as well. Uh, they're sending their BCA trackers all over the country for us so that we can get uh, our athletes to have hands-on experience with an avalanche transceiver. 
Our Brass 101 course is a lot like any other avalanche awareness course, but where I really want to differentiate is by focusing on human factors that I discussed earlier. I think the decision-making, group decision-making process is so important and basically understanding things as simple as if you feel uncomfortable, probably someone else does too, and it's a good idea to say something. Things as simple as that. Another way I really want to distinguish our Brass 101 Avalanche Awareness course is by making sure, even if it's some classroom, I want everyone to get outside or get their hands on an avalanche transceiver. I feel like just that physical contact with an avalanche transceiver helps them, for one, learn how to use them, but also gives them a little bit more understanding of the responsibilities and the risks that they're taking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it's pretty key to have good partners, and it sounds like you guys have some excellent ones. And then in addition, probably the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education, ARI, is helping out with, with uh, you know, helping to facilitate some of these level ones and level twos. Yes, we're definitely working closely with ARI. On this, I want our courses to be at the ARI standard. Uh, it's a program that I helped develop years ago, and uh, I'm really proud of proud of that program. If there are any area instructors that want to teach in late April in, in Park City and Snowbird, let me know because, our, like I said, our courses are growing and uh, we're looking for instructors. Another sponsor I really want to thank is RECO. Uh, RECO is an important partner for us in that many of the athletes and skiers that I'm educating might find themselves without avalanche gear and might even be inbounds. And so if we can get RECO in all their clothes while they're skiing in a place like Solden, Austria, or other resorts, that adds uh, another layer of security. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, it uh, sounds like you're doing some great work with the Brass Foundation. I was wondering if you wanted to share any stories of your guiding career, um, any close calls or watershed moments where things really came together for you and you started to better understand the avalanche phenomenon? Yeah, I think uh, I think all my time in Europe and skiing in so many different places, so many different snowpacks, even in Europe, you know, Eastern Europe is a lot more intercontinental than Western Europe, for example. So there really is a lot of different snow over there. Um, I think skiing over there for that many years and seeing so much happen. I mean, I've been pretty lucky, knock on wood, um, but I've also lost a lot of friends and seen a lot of accidents and tragedies throughout my career. So I think the biggest thing that I've learned is, is to be patient and is to be risk adverse. And if I'm thinking at all that I'm not comfortable, uh, often the best idea is to find another way around or to turn back and, uh, ski another day. There was one time I was skiing in Italy in the Ortler Mountains near Bormio, and uh, we were having a great day. There was a ton of fresh snow. We almost weren't going to leave the hut that day. We decided to ski a pretty easy objective. Uh, we were one of the peaks just above the hut, and it went great. It was, we had an easy time climbing up the peak. We didn't have to put ski crampons on because the normally windblown slopes at the summit uh, had good snow to just skin right up. A lot of fun skiing down. We were staying on low angle slopes most of the way and feeling good. And to be honest, probably got a little overconfident 
because then we decided to ski a gully that was sort of a shortcut and would be a little more fun to get back to the hut. Um, we were quite lucky because where I got caught, it was low angle again, but we had skied a pretty steep gully that had been loading all the day before and the night before. Um, not a lot of wind, but there was enough, and I came down uh, the gully and came to a stop almost in a flat area, and it wasn't until the clients behind me came right up to me and stopped right, uh, right behind me that that was enough weight to unload a little slope just above us and come down on us. It was just a little terrain trap, and I was buried to my knees, but I couldn't move even buried to my knees, and we had to wait and for the tail guide to come come dig, dig me and one or two others out. So that was, uh, you know, luckily nothing came of that, but it was enough to make me realize I made some mistakes, uh, probably got a little overconfident, blue sky, uh, beautiful weather, nothing had happened yet, and we had skied almost all the way down. Um, those are just sort of clear human factors that would lead me to taking that shortcut in my decision-making and deciding to ski the gully when I could have skied around slightly lower angle slopes that were more open. Thanks for sharing that story with us, Michael. Um, that's some definitely some good advice, and it's nice to learn from those experiences, especially when nothing bad happens. Um, so, Michael, uh, people could reach out to you and can contact you if they have any questions or want to get involved through your through the foundation's website. Yeah, you bet. So brassfoundation.org is our website. If anyone wants to get involved in any way, we'd we'd love to have you. Um, like I said, we're our, as our programs grow, we're looking for more and more area instructors. Uh, as our programs grow, we're looking for more funding. And besides my major projects are developing curriculum and education uh, and growing the board of our young nonprofit foundation and fundraising. All right, there you have it. Get involved. Get in touch with Michael. It's a great program that they got going on here and uh, is really filling the gap. Uh, it's probably been needed for a little bit. So uh, thanks for sitting down, Michael, and have a great day. Cheers. Thank you, Caleb. It was a pleasure. Michael. For more information, check out the Brass Foundation's website at brassfoundation.org. Tag at the Avalanche Hour podcast on an Instagram or Facebook post and be entered to win a pair of Black Diamonds Legend gloves. It's so easy. Winner will be announced on April 15th. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks to our sponsors of the show. Couldn't do it without you guys. TAS Gazex. Black Diamond Peeps and Ten Barrel Brewing. These guys are amazing. Check them out. Music today was performed by Grammatic and Little Glass Men. Made possible by the permission of the artist or through the Creative Commons license put together by www.freemusicarchive.com. 
Check out more tracks from freemusicarchive.com or Grammatic through a link on my website. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. Tune in next time on April 1st for an interview with Rod Newcomb. You don't want to miss out on this one, guys. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. (laughs) 